multitudes of sincere and trusting believers are caught in the virtually invisible web of religious captivation in charismatic and other neo-Pentecostal churches and don't know it. They are unaware victims of spiritual abuse and exploitation perpetrated under the heavy hand of hyper-authoritarianism, that is to say, the leadership of the church group of which they are a part is dominating, controlling, and manipulating their followers, thereby exploiting them for personal gain and private kingdom building. Welcome to the Real Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lambert. In an hour when deception and apostasy is rampant on earth, the need for proclaiming the real truth has never been more desperate. Jesus prophesied, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Proclaiming the real truth of the written and rhema prophetic word of God that he is revealing in this hour concerning the church Jesus is building is our goal. Affecting real change in the hearts and minds of believers in Christ in order to fulfill the purposes and plans of God is our purpose. Horror stories of authoritarian abuse and exploitation and psychological enslavement in bona fide Christian churches abound. From time to time, particular isolated incidents have erupted in highly publicized news stories. However, those high-profile cases are really only the tip of the iceberg. The truth of the matter is, as several decades of my counseling ministry to hundreds of victims bears out, ecclesiastical enslavement and exploitation is widespread in certain sectors of Christendom in this nation. And it is vital to understand I'm not talking about radical, fringe, religious sects and cults, but well-respected church groups espousing otherwise orthodox Christian beliefs whose membership is comprised of a cross-section of average Americans, individuals, and families of every race, education level, station, and walk of life. Though religious predomination is certainly nothing new, and hyper-authoritarianism is by no means limited to the neo-Pentecostal branch of the church, it has, however, especially flourished in the charismatic and so-called second and third wave, that is, neo-Pentecostal groups, since it was infused into the very fabric, foundation, and functions of that branch of the church in the early to mid-70s. Moreover, it is the charismatic branch of which this ministry has been a part since its inception, which gives me not only the right— but also the duty to bring reproof of error and errancy in that realm. This kind of charismatic captivation is prevalent among charismatic and other neo-Pentecostal churches and groups primarily as a result of widely taught, 
and widely accepted hyper-authoritarian doctrines and practices first introduced in the 1970s by an alliance of five ministers who rose to prominence and spawned what became known as the Discipleship Shepherding Movement. Those doctrines and practices remain an integral part of the governmental foundation of many churches and groups yet today. This elite ministerial quintumvirate had somehow concluded that the newly created and burgeoning branch of the church, generated by the divinely orchestrated charismatic movement birthed in 1960, was in disarray and needed to be, quote-unquote, organized. Somehow they determined it was they God had appointed to accomplish the task of organizing the charismatic church. The purportedly inspired and Bible-based organizational structure they advocated and eventually instituted was virtually identical to the modern pyramid marketing structure so popular and prevalent today. The Fab Five placed themselves at the top of the pyramid of interrelated charismatic leaders, which quickly expanded into a downline of thousands of quote-unquote submitted ministers. In the mid-1970s, the entire matter of this movement erupted into a highly publicized international controversy. The result of the maelstrom was that the relevant doctrines and practices were repudiated and denounced by many well-known church leaders, and the ministers who invented and promulgated them fell into disrepute. However, despite the controversy and the public chastisement, those ministers and their followers initially remained unbowed and undeterred. They defended themselves, as well as the hyper-authoritarian teachings and practices and philosophies of church government they advocated. For many years afterward, they continued to teach those patently false and unscriptural doctrines and to develop what came to be an expansive, multi-level network of ministers and churches. Though it was now done less overtly, and there was a concerted and deliberate effort to take the whole matter underground to lessen as much as possible the negative effects of the controversy and to give the appearance of repentance. The unfortunate consequence of that move toward covertness and esotericism was that instead of being eradicated, those patently false doctrines and scripturally prohibited practices were infused into the very fabric and foundation of the charismatic-slash-neo-Pentecostal church at large, and are still espoused and practiced by many churches and groups in operation today. This stems partly from the fact that many of those ministries are headed by leaders who were a part of that network and adopted or adapted many of the doctrines and governmental philosophies advocated by its principles. Many church leaders themselves do not realize their leadership methodology is actually a hybrid form of hyper-authoritarianism and amounts to domination and control. The proper role of human under-shepherds is to lead people to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, and teach them how to be his followers in submission to him and his authority. Hyper-authoritarian leaders instead lead people to themselves 
and indoctrinate them to be their followers in total submission to them and their authority. In essence, these dominating shepherds teach they are the church members' Lord, Master, and Savior. They indoctrinate congregants to believe the spiritual leaders of the church themselves are the members' quote-unquote spiritual covering, and any member who ever leaves the church will be quote out from under end quote their quote unquote covering, be without any covering, and experience terrible curses and consequences as a result. This false hypothesis of absolute submission with which subjects are incessantly indoctrinated is the bedrock of such authoritarian doctrines. That, coupled with the enslaving organizational authority structure in place in the groups where these unbiblical doctrines are espoused, is primarily what makes these techniques and mechanisms effectual and effective. And it is chiefly the spiritual and psychological needs and problems of attendees of these groups that makes them vulnerable to such unauthorized domination and control, as well as exploitation. The mechanisms of psychological manipulation, domination, and control employed in these groups are virtually identical to those employed by certified cults. Indeed, the stark truth is that many of the groups and churches who employ these techniques and mechanisms are themselves at the very minimum quasi-cults and in some cases bona fide cults. Jesus prophesied, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshiper. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Proclaiming the real truth of the Word of God to the world, the Real Truth Radio Network at realtruthradio.com. The abuse and exploitation occurring in groups where these hyper-authoritarian systems of governance are instituted come in various shapes and shades. In a nutshell, the dumb sheep are taught they cannot trust their own judgment or ability to receive direction from the Lord for even the most mundane decisions of their lives, but must rely instead upon the supposed transcendent wisdom and superior spirituality of their human shepherds. Typically, subjects must obtain the approval of their group gurus regarding virtually all domestic matters and decisions, matters of romance, such as who members date and marry, health and insurance matters, employment and career matters, and most of all, regarding every detail of members' personal finances, which requires their leader's approval for practically every significant expenditure. 
Relentless programming with this premise, along with constant bombardment with belittling derision, leads to spiritual and psychological paralysis for submissive adherents. Gradually, as the hidden web of religious witchcraft is woven, and their natural resistance to such domination and control is dissipated, docile subjects eventually become unwitting and helpless psychological slaves of self-aggrandizing church leaders and their grandiose plans for building of their private, personal, earthly kingdoms. In these groups, the quote-unquote authority of the quote-unquote shepherds is absolute, sacrosanct, and inviolable, that is, without reprisal. Any semblance of anything other than total and unquestioning obeisance to the desires and counsel of the chain of leaders is considered rebellion and insubordination, and simply is not tolerated. Members live under the constant threat of being branded with the scarlet letter R for rebel, openly denounced and shamed from the bully pulpit, and consequently shunned by their covenant community, as well as the threat of excommunication, which is rarely exercised except in the case of the most outspoken dissidents, because they don't want to lose the members and their financial support. Moreover, members are indoctrinated to accept the leadership's set agenda and mission of the group, regarding which they have little real say, as their personal burden and responsibility, and to commit their time, talent, and most importantly, their tithe to its successful completion. The oppressive maltreatment and mistreatment to which members of these cult-like groups are subjected seems to me to be the spiritual equivalent of the hard task mastery over the Israelites during their centuries of captivity under the Egyptian pharaohs. So what are the consequences and effects we are talking about here? A scant few slightly disillusioned people with their feelings a little hurt? Far from it. We are talking about an immense number of broken and destroyed families. Marriages and friendships, multitudes of unpretentious, formerly trusting people who are now psychologically traumatized and marred and spiritually shipwrecked, potentially for life. Added to that are substantial numbers of failed businesses, bankruptcies, lost fortunes, nervous breakdowns, contracted health maladies, suicides, and premature deaths by various related causes, and the like, just to name some of the consequences experienced by victims. Indeed, the details of the havoc and decimation wreaked upon victims' lives is far too extensive and, frankly, morose to possibly be able to relate here. But suffice it to say, it is sweeping, mind-boggling, and sadly, in some cases, barring the miraculous, irreversible. The two greatest problems with deception is that the deceived are deceived about being deceived and their ego and pride make it difficult for them to accept the fact that they are in deception. In the case of many of those who do finally accept the fact they have been duped, 
For years afterward, they reel in varied degrees of anger, embarrassment, resentment, disillusionment, and distrust. No one wants to be a sucker. Indeed, the sad and unfortunate experience of this ministry in attempting to rescue victims of authoritarian abuse and exploitation is that most simply don't want to hear about anything suggesting they may be deceived or that their beloved church and its leaders, to which they have become so dependent, could possibly be involved in any kind of deception or error. Even when confronted with proof positive, these unscriptural and cult-like teachings and practices are an integral, albeit covert, part of their church's operations. Many indoctrinated adherents react with angry and vehement denial, staunchly refusing to accept even the remotest possibility such a thing could be so. Moreover, astoundingly, instead of desiring liberation, such deniers opt to remain captive in what has become to them the familiar and friendly confines of the institution of which they are a member. This sad scenario is strikingly similar to that of many career criminals who prefer and choose institutional incarceration over the liberties and latitudes of a normal life of freedom. The constant and abiding prayer of all believers should be that God may grant the captives of all these groups the, quote, repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will, end quote, 2 Timothy 2, 26. Fortunately, though, there are those who, despite their considerable chagrin and pain, do want to be liberated from the witchcraft of domination and control, regardless of the cost. Somewhere in the psyche of most sound-thinking humans is an intense desire to be free, along with an utter disdain for any form or degree of illegitimate predomination and exploitation. For those people, there are signs of hyper-authoritarianism that are readily detectable when you know what they are. That is to say, there are a number of common psychological control mechanisms employed within groups in which hyper-authoritarian doctrines and practices are espoused and implemented. Unfortunately, they aren't always simple overt and obvious, but are often sophisticated, covert, and hidden. They are, however, identifiable by those who are informed about them and know what to look for. The purpose of this booklet is to delineate what the common control mechanisms are and how to recognize them. The one thing this booklet cannot supply, though, is the objectivity required to analyze the church or group of which one is a part to determine if these mechanisms are being employed there. As I close this chapter, I want to state categorically, as I did repeatedly in many ways throughout the original volume from which this booklet was adapted, that I myself am a bona fide charismatic believer 
and minister, having never been anything other than that since salvation, and am wholly persuaded of the validity of the charismatic movement and its divine orchestration. By no means am I engaging in any form or degree of charismatic bashing in this booklet nor am I denigrating in any form or fashion the charismatic experience or biblical teachings restored during the charismatic movement. Rather, I am proffering what I am fully convinced is valid and very much needed God-inspired reproof and correction of patently unscriptural doctrines and practices which unfortunately are being practiced within much of the charismatic and neo-Pentecostal church. That does not mean I am anti-charismatic or anti-Pentecostal, as some spiritually immature charismatics are wont to allege, at the mere hint of criticism of anything relevant to the charismatic realm or experience. I am neither anti-charismatic nor anti-Pentecostal, but rather pro-both. My analysis, conclusions, and commentary here, or in any of my writings and speaking, is not sheer criticism for the purpose of pillaring the charismatic Pentecostal church, but rather reproof for its perfection. I am also quite aware these doctrines and practices are being espoused and employed in other segments and streams of the Church of Jesus as well. However, it is of the neo-Pentecostal branch of the Church I am a part, and as such have a particular right, yea, even duty, to confront that branch with needed reproof. It is my deepest desire and heartfelt prayer that all those who name themselves among the brotherhood of Christ will give heed to the reproof and admonitions presented in this booklet and take the actions necessary to liberate the children of God from the oppressive captivation of men. For they are called to be sons of God, not slaves of men. 1 Corinthians 7 23. Remember the call of Christ himself, quote, If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. End quote, John 8.36. As well as Paul's echo of Christ's call. He said in Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, Keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is Stephen Lambert. We trust you're enjoying this episode of the Real Truth Podcast. You can submit your comments and questions at realtruthradio.com. At the very core of hyper-authoritarian doctrines and practices is religious enslavement. Moreover, let us be clear that religious enslavement 
is witchcraft, a.k.a. sorcery. Thus, it follows, then, that hyper-authoritarian doctrines and practices are, at bottom, witchcraft. And that assessment is not at all an extrapolation, but is based on the intrinsic nature of the teachings. Moreover, it is hardly necessary to point out that witchcraft is something of the devil's domain and not God's. It is this reality that makes these teachings and the practices they promote so decidedly aberrant, as well as repugnant to those who are cognizant of it. Though it be so that these doctrines and practices amount to witchcraft, the problem is they have already been infused into and become an integral part of the doctrinal and structural system of a large segment of the charismatic Pentecostal body of Christ. Thus, the majority of charismatic Pentecostal believers who have been deluded into accepting the validity of them would have extreme difficulty in understanding and accepting that they are scripturally invalid and amount to witchcraft, despite the absolute veracity of both of those assessments. Indeed, the very fact that it has been an otherwise legitimate and normative Pentecostal and Neo-Pentecostal charismatic word of faith movement and third wave at all churches that these cultic doctrines and practices have been taught and instituted has itself augmented their obscurity and continuance. Of course, not all Pentecostal or Neo-Pentecostal churches employ these teachings and tactics. Yet a substantial percentage of especially neo-Pentecostal churches do, in some form and degree, a percentage much higher than what the average believer would surmise. In all fairness, I must say, there no doubt are some leaders who have accepted and instituted these doctrines and practices in their churches in sincere naivety and ignorance without totally comprehending their full import and impact. Many of those cases are the result of those leaders having blithely cloned their ministry structure after someone else's with whom they were associated, affiliated, or simply impressed. Nevertheless, a significant portion of the leaders who have instituted these errant doctrines and practices have done so with deliberation, knowing fully and precisely what they are doing having perceived in them a convenient, well-camouflaged, highly effective, and widely accepted mechanism affording both license and means to predominate and prevail over a group of congregants in order to enlist and mobilize them as the implementers of their personal kingdom building. Once wild, thoroughly indoctrinated, subdued, and subjugated, these indentured congregants then become the willful implementers, agents, collaborators, and operatives for the designs of these errant, self-aggrandizing, and self-exalting ecclesiastical autocrats. The True Nature of Sorcery Asserting as I have that these authoritarian doctrines and practices amount to witchcraft requires that we understand the true nature of witchcraft and sorcery. Witchcraft and sorcery are synonymous terms. Some Bible translations use one term, some the other, 
but both refer to the same thing. The root Greek word for sorcery is pharmakeia, which literally means to administer drugs. From this Greek word are derived various English words having to do with medicinal drugs or narcotics, such as pharmaceuticals and pharmacy. However, there is a common misconception concerning the nature of witchcraft and sorcery, resulting primarily from the etymology of this Greek word translated sorcery or witchcraft in the New Testament. This word pharmakeia was originally coined to allude to the use of narcotics as mind-altering and trans-inducing intoxicants in pagan religious ceremonies and ministrations throughout the ancient history of paganism. Notwithstanding, while the original meaning of the word had to do with administering drugs to aid in the casting of spells and inducing trances in pagan occult worship, in the passage of time it came to have a broader connotation than just that in the Greek language. It came to be what is known as a metonym a figure of speech or kind of colloquialism evoking an idea related to but greater than the literal meaning of the word's components. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Real Truth. I'm Stephen Lambert. Please subscribe to the podcast, share with your friends, and visit realtruthradio.com to join our mailing list. Be sure to tune in to the next edition of The Real Truth. Until then, this is Stephen Lambert reminding you that with God all things are possible and all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to His purpose.